You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So it's really like a uh, an instance, at least from a competition standpoint, of the laws not keeping up with sort of where we are in terms of the digital ecosystem right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a new algorithmic model that claims to predict crimes before they happen. I've got the story of legislators in Japan looking to open up big tech algorithms. And later in the show, Ben's conversation with Matt Kent, he's competition policy advocate at Public Citizen, and they're discussing the American Innovation and Online Choice Act. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? So mine comes from Bloomberg News by Carrington York, and it's entitled Algorithm Claims to Predict Crime in U.S. Cities Before uh, It Happens. Oh, that old chestnut. I know. Uh, <laughs> and you can already sense my the skepticism in my voice. Right. So we've previously, uh, previously talked about these predictive policing algorithmic models. Yeah. The most famous was one developed in 2012 by the Chicago Police Department and other academic researchers. Mm-hmm. It was called the Crime and Victimization Risk Model, and it uh, produced what were called strategic subjects, so potential victims or potential criminals based on a bunch of factors, so things like age, arrest history, location, and that determined a score of how urgently certain people needed to be monitored or protected Mm -hmm. uh, as either a victim or as a perpetrator. Hmm. There was an investigation into that model um, about five years later in 2017 uh, that basically a majority of the people identified through the algorithmic process had no connection to crime at all. Uh, There was racial bias in how the formula worked. Hmm. It was basically completely ineffective. Yeah. Um, So – there are some entrepreneuring, uh, entrepreneurial rather, uh, social scientists at the University of Chicago who wanted to try and do it again. I don't mean to disparage <laughs> social scientists at the University of Chicago. My dad is a social scientist who went to the University of Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, I hope he doesn't take this personally uh, if he listens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but this is a new type of predictive policing model, hmm. uh, and they tout 90% accuracy, which I'll note – Seems kind of dubious to me, uh, but we'll we'll get to that in a moment. So this uh, algorithm, algorithm, instead of looking at past arrest history or quantifying certain characteristics of individuals, 
divides cities into 1,000-square-foot tiles. Hmm. And the researchers use historical data on violent crimes and property crimes to test the model. Um, It detects patterns over time to predict uh, future events. Okay. And they tested their model using kind of backdated analysis. So if they had been using their model to predict uh, crimes, property crimes, or violent crimes in various cities, uh, and it worked relatively well, the study claimed. So they tried it in Atlanta, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, all about 90% uh, effective. I have a couple of problems with this. First of all, if it's if this is something that's going to be used by law enforcement, um, then the government is is getting involved and could be introducing tactics similar to the ones we saw in 2017, where certain neighborhoods are targeted based on their characteristics. It's hard to separate a 1,000 square foot tiled neighborhood from the demographic characteristics of that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So you kind of run into the same problem where you are uh, maybe introducing an additional level of policing um, based on either racial characteristics or socioeconomic characteristics Okay, without actually delving in to solve those societal problems. Okay. Uh, So that's certainly one potential concern. Hmm. Um, The other thing is when designing any study like this, there there there's some human involvement in designing the algorithm. So it's just impossible to design something that doesn't have a bias when a bunch of social scientists sit in a room and determine what are the key factors that uh, determine where violent crime and and property crimes are happening. Hmm. so, you know, this this algorithm might be better because it introduces some more complicated calculations like, for example, they mentioned what happens to the rate of violent crime if property crimes go up. That is interesting. All of this is interesting from an academic perspective. Where we've seen this fail in the past is, you know, we have a lot of cities that are dealing with a very serious violent crime problem. Yeah. And they are going to be looking for any tools uh, to help with things like predictive policing. And we've seen... Uh, how, from a, a policy perspective, that's failed in the past. And I don't see anything in this algorithm uh, that would make it immune from those types of failures. Hmm. Um, that was the nature of the cr- uh, critique from Emily Bender. She's a professor uh, of linguistics at the University of Washington. Um, they mentioned her in the story. Uh, she wrote a series of tweets critiquing uh, this algorithm, basically saying that you should target the underlying inequities um, instead of doing this type of uh, predictive policing. And also... Uh, they're really focusing on a specific set of crimes that are more common among certain socioeconomic or demographic groups, and they're not focusing on things like white-collar crime, securities, fraud, mm. environmental crimes, you know, so the people— so all that broken windows kind of stuff? Exactly, exactly, yeah. uh, which that stuff certainly matters, and it certainly has implications for uh, quality of life. Hmm. Um I also I think an algorithm like this, if it's going to be used by actual policymakers, could subject jurisdictions to uh, legal problems hmm. uh, because there were lawsuits uh, against this previous algorithm uh, within the Chicago Policing Department, um, basically that it was biased against uh, people who are not actually perpetrators of crime, um, but they were subject to additional searches, uh, surveillance, simply because – they had been identified by this faulty tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's certainly worthy of reading for academic purposes. Uh, if you know anything about building these types of algorithms, um, it is developed by uh, 
an organization called, or a, a journal called Nature Human Behavior. Um, it was published on June 30th, but I certainly have my doubts as to the efficacy of something like this. Now, okay, so a couple things. Yes. Is, to, to what degree is this coming at the problem differently because they're going after blocks of real estate versus individuals? So they claim that location is more accurate than going after the profile of individuals. Mm-hmm. That kind of, and I don't know how to speak like a true statistician, but that kind of presents a correlation causation problem Mm. uh, because certain people live in certain areas. And that's not always just an accident of who buys a house where. It's sometimes the result of very deliberate deliberate policies over the past 100 years that have forced um, certain individuals and demographic groups to live in particular areas that have become dangerous. Yeah. Um, And, you know, this— the past couple of weeks, I had the opportunity to drive around different parts of Baltimore that I had not been to. And you can see that neighborhood blight just kind of creates this never-ending cycle of violence and uh, and poverty uh, that you can't, you can't really separate the 1,000-foot square um, or the 1,000-square-foot area from the actual people who live there. Uh, so I'm not sure how different a algorithm based on place is going to do from an algorithm based on personal characteristics, just because I think it's hard to separate those two. Yeah. Let me, let me be the bad guy here and, and, um, easy role for you to play. It's the part I was born to play. Um, I think every police officer certainly, and probably you and I just as citizens know where the good parts of town are and the bad parts of town are, right? Like you said, you were driving through parts of Baltimore and I'm guessing you, these are not, there, there are places in Baltimore, there are places here where we live where you'd be less likely to go take your kids on a walk because you just don't feel comfortable there, right? You don't feel like it's safe. Right. So... Given that that is a reality that I think it's in our best interest to acknowledge it exists, the and and in the old days, I would imagine you know these this sort of data was just gathered either by word of mouth or you know whatever. If someone's trying to automate that and increase the um, uh, the granularity of it, you know how small a block we're talking about. is the downside that there are all kinds of innocent people who are just try, you know, getting on with their lives and doing their best that they can who would get caught up in this Because they just happen to be in the wrong area. I mean, that's where the, this runs into the same problem as some of these previous algorithms mm-hmm. is then you just happen to have characteristics that were suspicious to social scientists and law enforcement. And now you have— spatial areas that are suspicious to social t- scientists and law enforcement. Mm. Let so, me ask let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Would you be okay with this algorithm if it were being used to provide um funding for social programs? That is a great question. Smarty pants. I know. You might have <laughs> you, you might have gotten me there. Well, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think that's different because— Okay. <laughs> and and there, there really is a true distinction here. You're not depriving people of their personal freedom or right, over-policing them and, and harassing them on right. the basis of social services. Sure. And all of the models that we use to dole out social services to localities, states, is based on 
some type of spatial analysis. Really, that's just the United States census, how many Mm -hmm. people live there. But, I mean, we do all different types of economic surveys to figure where the most, uh, the greatest amount of economic need is. uh, And so that's kind of already done to an extent. But I think that's different than predictive policing because there are just a lot of implications that come with predictive policing. Mm -hmm. It's not just the tangible effects of you're falsely arrested because you happen to be in the long area. It's also the intangible effects of always feeling like you're under some type of increased suspicion where even if your civil liberties aren't directly being curtailed, you kind of feel like you're always under a watchful eye just because of where you happen to live. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I think that's a problem that's inherent to any predictive policing algorithm. This one, to its credit, um, these researchers are trying a different model by recognizing that previous intelligence-based algorithms produce limited insight into the social system of crime. Um, while they might help with criminal surveillance, they also uh, introduce certain types of systemic biases. And it's good that they're recognizing that. I'm just not sure that this solution is the panacea to the problem of uh, predictive policing algorithms. I don't think there is a panacea to the p- problem of predictive policing algorithms. I, I think it's kind of a doomed enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of those that until I, until proven otherwise, I will always um, stick my skeptical eye on uh, these types of studies um, just because – you really, you really can't predict individual crimes before they happen with any degree of certainty without putting an undue watchful eye of suspicion on either a geographic area or a demographic group. And I think that's kind of fundamentally unfair and not the role of um, social scientists who are nerdy enough to develop an algorithm, in my but, view. But you can predict you know, neighborhoods that are likely to have more crime than others, right, based on history. Yes, you can, um, but the implications of that and whether that's going to be used by law enforcement, we've already shown how that can introduce biases that unfairly uh, enrapture individuals. Hmm. Maybe that's not going to happen when you're doing it by 1,000 square foot uh, segments of a city, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I can certainly envision a situation where it would uh, end up capturing some of those people just by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So is this a a case of— Tread lightly with extreme care. In other words, don't go in willy-nilly with something like I, – like, I, 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 I hesitate to throw out a tool like this at all because I think, uh, you know, using history to predict what may happen somewhere is a useful method, right? But uh, but I also recognize the point you're making that uh, we we so we have a history of, of being unfair to certain groups, right? In our policing, so, yes. <laughs> I would say so a couple we need of to things. Acknowledge that as well. Maybe one, I'm being too harsh on the social scientists involved here, yeah. Uh, because I think simply doing a social science study to develop this algorithm might be useful mm-hmm. uh, if they can actually prove that with 90 percent accuracy they can predict property and violent crimes. I am dubious um, that they could actually, that actually could be something replicated in a majority of American cities. Yeah. Um, particularly areas where things aren't so neatly divided in 1,000 foot, uh, 1,000 square inch uh, geographic spatial segments. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong in trying to do this as kind of an experiment in 
social science tools that can help solve crimes. We have a major violent crime problem in this country right now, and I think anything, any idea that's introduced to try to alleviate that problem is welcome. I'm just wary of law enforcement making the same mistake they did in 2012 in trying to purchase this algorithm, use it through some sort of software to actually do predictive policing. That's mm-hmm. where the negative consequences come in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's useful as an academic tool if it can be replicated, if it's something that's peer-reviewed and it's not just they stumbled upon a 90% accuracy rate um, because uh, of some type of correlation causation uh, mishap. But when it's actually used by police departments, that's where you face this potential for harassment, abuse, and over-surveillance. And that's something that I, w- I would be wary of. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, My story this week comes from the Financial Times, and it's titled Japanese Court Ruling Poised to Make Big Tech Open Up on Algorithms. Uh, I thought this is a a fascinating story just from the story itself, but also kind of the the international implications that uh, I think sometimes it's – it's easy for us to forget that uh, there are a whole lot of other countries out there. There are? I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> and, uh, right. <laughs> and the things that they do and just the the way that their laws and policies are set up can affect us here. And this is, I think, an example of this. Uh, at issue here is um, there was a court in Tokyo who ruled in favor of a restaurant chain. Um, and it's uh, – Henry Yumuro. Henry Yumuro. I think I got Korean that right. Korean barbecue, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the uh, owner of this uh, chain brought an antitrust case against uh, Kakaku.com, which is um, a restaurant review platform, evidently the largest restaurant review platform in Japan. The Japanese Yelp, basically. There you go. Yeah. And uh, the, the this restaurant chain had um, argued that they had altered the way that user scores were tallied and that it was hurting the sales in their restaurants. Um, and sure enough, uh, the Japanese courts ruled against the website and they had to pay uh, just over a quarter million dollars in damages for abuse of superior bargaining position. Not a term of art I've heard in the U.S. legal system, no. <laughs> Not one I've, I've heard either. Um, but Which is another thing I find fascinating. Right. You know, when you sort of dip your toe into what are some of the things that other nations have in place in their legal system. Right. So what's at issue here is that uh, this may make uh, some of these big tech companies open up their algorithms uh, and not be able to consider them to be trade secrets. There are anymore. a lot of nervous people in Silicon Valley right now. Right, right. Um, and so Japan has their own Fair Trade Commission, which is their antitrust regulator. Um, and they're saying that uh, this could do just that. It, it could uh, it could make them open up the algorithms to make sure that they're treating different organizations fairly. Uh, And I think it's interesting to consider the broad effects that could have because if, you know, if they're, if they open them up, uh, open them up for viewing in Japan, that means everybody else is going to have a look at them too. What what do you make of this, Ben? Right. So these would be public proceedings in Japan. And theoretically, if some of the big guys are targeted and they mention in this article, uh, Facebook, Amazon, and Google, Mm -hmm. if they lose in Japanese court, they might be uh, forced to reveal some of their trade secrets. Mm -hmm. Our courts are far more protective of economic uh, information, 
critical proprietary economic information like trade secrets. It's just part of more part of our legal culture. Um, so that can generally – that's only included in a legal proceeding if it's absolutely necessary to adjudicate that proceeding. And even then, there are ways of keeping trade secrets out of court. Uh, I don't know enough about the Japanese legal system to know uh, how different it is in terms of um, these these types of th- this type of data making it into a legal proceeding. But mm-hmm. it seems like with a statute that passed there recently, and they mentioned a different one in the, so that statute was the Act on Improving Transparency and Fairness of Digital Platforms. Uh, there's a similar statute in the European Union, the Platform to Business Regulation, which came into effect in 2020. We now have a couple legal regimes that are set up that might force these big tech companies to reveal at least portions of their algorithms. Uh, and that's really terrifying to them because they develop the same algorithms for services that are used all across the world. While they right. might be protected in U.S. courts, uh, once this is revealed in a public proceeding in a Japanese court or a European court of justice, um, that information gets out there even though it is a trade secret. Uh for most normal people, it's insignificant. You know, if I saw a sheet of paper that had a portion of an algorithm on it, uh, it would look <laughs> right. like Japanese to Might me, as well literally. Be, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, imagine if you're working for a competitor mm. and that mm-hmm. gives you an idea into how to improve your own algorithm and it all came out of a legal proceeding. Uh, so I think our U.S. courts are just far more careful about protecting that proprietary information um, but this is a groundbreaking ca- uh, case from from that perspective, uh, and it might maybe this is the intended effect force these companies to shore up algorithms to protect themselves from being uh, sued in a European court in a Japanese court, uh, lest they have to reveal some of their extremely valuable trade secrets. Yeah, and maybe I- that can be a valuable incentive structure. Could be. We've heard. I, I know some stories. We've heard of, you know, some of these companies. I think it was Facebook. Some of their engineers saying they they weren't a hundred percent sure how their algorithms worked. You know, like right. Because <laughs> things get grafted on over the years, and and they're complicated things. And and we've certainly seen plenty of examples where uh, you think about the example when um, Microsoft released their Tay artificial intelligence on the world, and and it spun off in a direction they had not anticipated. Right. So, you know, algorithms can go in, in funny places, in funny directions. Um, is it possible that these companies could either spin up a, a custom version of the algorithm just for Japan and alter it for the rest of the world or, or claim that they're doing so? From a legal perspective, that might help. You would probably have a better idea than me how difficult that would be from a technological perspective. Yeah. Uh, I mean— you probably wouldn't be able to have the same type of functionality for whatever app or, or software you're selling mm-hmm. if you were to have a watered-down algorithm that didn't have the the greatest trade secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I assume that applications work as well as they do uh, because the algorithms are uh, complicated, yeah. <laughs> uh, extensive, and coming up with a shell of an algorithm to please a, a certain market you that that would cost your bottom line uh, as well. So you'd have to weigh the uh, costs and benefits uh, benefits of doing that. I don't think it would be an easy decision, um, but it's certainly a a huge deal to have to reveal trade secrets in in court. Could we imagine them pulling out of these markets? I mean, that would be an even bigger hit to your to your bottom line. The Japanese yeah. market, particularly uh, for 
anything in the world of electronics mm-hmm. or uh, smartphone applications. Uh, I mean, that's one of the world's largest markets. Yeah. Uh, so it just would not be worth abandoning an entire market just because you were one company in one case thus far has been forced to reveal a portion of its algorithm. Mm-hmm. If they use this statute to start going after the big guys uh, and Google starts to get exposed uh, both in terms of its liability and it's being forced to reveal some of its trade secrets, that might be a uh, last resort would be to pull the plug on that market. Hmm. I presume if that were to happen, um, then Japanese lawmakers and, and legislators might try to uh, ameliorate that problem. Um, oh, right, right. Certainly we've seen in other instances big tech companies threaten to leave countries because of some type of regulatory regime. Uh, very rarely do they actually do that because you're just giving up a, a large part- uh, a large portion of your potential business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so oftentimes the threats are, are not exactly followed through. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible that they could threaten to leave the market and force some type of change among Japanese regulators to uh, expose them or, or to decrease the exposure of potential trade secrets. Hmm. All right. Well, it's certainly one to keep an eye on and, and kind of fascinating, you know, this global village in which we find ourselves, right? It's a really fascinating story. It was a good find. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss here on our show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, you recently uh, had a conversation with Matt Kent. He is the competition policy advocate at Public Citizen, and you all were discussing the American Innovation and Online Choice Act. Here's Ben and Matt Kent. A lot of the work I do is focused on competition in the digital marketplace. Um, And then there's a lot of sort of uh, overlap with how that affects folks' uh, privacy and security online. Um, you know, I think looking at this big picture, you know, we have a situation where online digital platforms, uh, have become extremely concentrated, right? Like it's always been, there's always been big companies, but in the past decade, things have really narrowed down. It's, it's, we're 
basically looking at four major companies uh, dominating parts of sort of like the everyday digital experience, right? Search, shopping. Um, not only do they dominate those experiences, but they actively undercut rival firms through a various anti-competitive tactics. So the result is, is really an internet where you don't have realistic choices or the opportunity to walk away from a platform whose business model is basically premised on data surveillance, surveillance advertising, you being the product, right? Like we're now in a situation where companies that have different uh, business models, so um, maybe a subscription-based model, something based on privacy, those companies exist, but they can't reach consumers because they're caught sort of in this uh, series of anti-competitive traps. So I, I think directly to your question, the lack of competition in the marketplace leads to, you know, abuses on the, on, from, from the dominant platforms, but also like we can't vote with our feet, right. As, as, right. as digi <laughs> digital consumers, like I could move over to some of the privacy Plat, you know, first platforms. There's a few search engines out there, or or social media platforms, but it's like nobody else is doing it. There's no interoperability. The network effects don't work in my favor, so I can't do it. I'm trapped as a user. Right. You're sitting on an island with a bunch of other nerds who care about privacy and security. Well, millions of users, the people you actually want to interact with, are on one of the four major platforms. What are, just based on your research and knowledge, like what are the specific provisions that lead to these anti-competitive practices? So are there loopholes and statutes? Like why, why does this problem exist? So it's really like a, uh, an instance, at least from a competition standpoint, of the laws not keeping up with sort of where we are in terms of the digital ecosystem right now, right? But, you know, if you want to pursue a competition lawsuit or enforcement action against any of the big four, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Google, you know, you're going to have to be using the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act, which don't really, you know, the text of the statute is very, very vague, but the jurisprudence over the years isn't, isn't fit for, for addressing the harms that I, that I talked about, sort of the, the, the domination of, of the online user experience and the lack of competition. Well, there, there's also this, this problematic aspect of the consumer welfare standard. And we can, we can talk more about it, but essentially like the too long didn't read of it is essentially is, you know, since the seventies, since uh, the Chicago school Bork sort of uh, law and economics movement, antitrust litigation is mostly premised, not all, but very much premised on the consumer welfare standard, which essentially means what's the cost to consumers, right? So if you're trying to, to litigate an antitrust action against big tech, I mean, they have a very good defense, right? Like if you look at the consumer welfare standard, these products don't cost anybody anything, right? Right. <laughs> Facebook is awesome. I can communicate with all my high school friends for free. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's there's a holdup in the sense that Congress hasn't acted to update the laws, which is which is something we're working on very intensely right now at Public Citizen and, and other organizations. But also the courts have have really gone in the wrong direction. So on that point, can you describe uh, efforts ongoing in Congress? I know there are a couple of specific pieces of legislation that have been proposed. Can you just give us an overview of those? So essentially, about two years ago, there was a big push for 
big tech accountability, um, using the antitrust laws. And this is a bipartisan thing. Democrats and Republicans have slightly, I think, different reasons uh, for for opposing the big tech companies, but uh, they coalesced uh, around a series of bills uh, in the House Judiciary Committee. There were like, this was two years ago, there were wall-to-wall hearings, all kinds of legislative activity. It was really cool. Like it was actually what congressional committees are supposed to do, right? They hauled in the tech executives like Jeff Bezos had to had to answer questions in, in front of everybody. Like it was great. And they produced like a very thorough over a thousand page report on the practices, the anti-competitive practices of, of the big tech companies. So out of that effort came a package of six bills uh, aimed at big tech uh, accountability through antitrust competition. A lot has happened since those bills passed out of House Judiciary ups and downs. But uh, where we are now is two of those bills have really sort of taken the momentum and everything is largely settled on the Senate versions. So the two bills are the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. Uh, that's the Klobuchar-Grassley bill. Uh, you'll, you'll hear it referred to as a self-preferencing bill. But there's also uh, the open app marketplace app, and that's from Blumenthal and Blackburn. I just I just want to pause and say that the pairings on these uh, these co-sponsorships are just uh, just wild stuff. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know these senators uh, the way we do, uh, they are ideological opposites in each case. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Important context. Um, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of that throughout it. Um, sort of this mashup of uh, unlikely bedfellows throughout the push on these bills. So, so anyway, I'm going to call them. ICO and OAMA or the self-preferencing bill and the App Store bill uh, interchangeably. But those are the ones that really we're working on right now that are like it's do or die time before August. Um, Both bills have passed Senate Judiciary by really large margins and they're basically ready for the floor. So the battle right now is, is to get them there before August. You know, it's been wild. There's like a crazy asymmetry between sort of the spending and lobbying capacity of big tech the four companies combined, and then sort of on the other side, public interest groups, civil society groups, and the medium to small businesses that are really like taking the hit uh, in the current in the current model. So that yeah, I mean the, the that's where we stand. What is at least the ostensible root of the opposition among big tech companies? Like obviously they don't want to be broken up, but they can't directly say that to members of Congress. What's their argument that? these pieces of legislation would be detrimental to the public. It's a little depressing um, in the sense that like, at least from my perspective, but these bills don't even like, they're not even breakup bills, right? Like they're out of that bigger package that I mentioned before that came out of House Judiciary. There were some like really ideal bills that would uh, stop mergers uh, from, you know, uh, presumptively halt any mergers from big tech companies that w- others that would give the FTC power, although they arguably have the power now to break up these tech giants to order spinoffs. You know, think of Facebook, Instagram, sort of the big picture, like whoa, shock the world, Sherman Act stuff. All of that is not in the conversation. Like right now, we're talking about. Bills that are super important and I think would go a long way to chip away at big tech's sort of dominant stranglehold um, because self-preferencing really is at the foundation of that. Just to sort of put it in context, the ones we're dealing with now aren't even like 
top of the class, total right. destruction of, of big tech's model, although they would very much affect it. So, I mean, their arguments against it are, I think, at the risk of repeating opponents' arguments, they've, and they've been tough to pin down over, over, you know, the, the months at this point, but they center largely around a concern, a bunch of like hypotheticals that could possibly spin out of, of the, of, of the litigation that would come from these bills. So another like small point that I hope listeners of your podcast as, uh, as, as legal, big time legal heads, uh, would appreciate, but like these bills don't even, they don't establish like a regulatory compliance regime. They establish a series of legal standards that would be enforced by the courts. You know, DOJ, FTC, state AGs would be able to institute cases and then courts would decide. And that's how enforcement would work. There's no private right of action in the, um, in the Klobuchar Senate bill. So we're really talking about sort of government actors enforcing this bill. So anyway, that they- So for the non-legal people, that means you or I as consumers wouldn't have the ability to sue these tech companies directly for their anti-competitive practices. It would have to be instituted by the AGs or uh, the DOJ. That's right. That's right. Um, but anyway, so from that, that point, a lot of the arguments against the bill are, well- we're concerned that a sort of wild-eyed state AG would pick up a case that touches on content moderation or privacy and security and through a series of bad decisions, you know, that's that part is sort of, of murky in Big Tech's argument of exactly how these – the legal arguments and how this would bear out. But they're saying the whole thing would whiplash and, you know, we'd no longer be able to moderate content you know, we would be scared because of litigation, which is sort of a laughable argument when you think about <laughs> when you think about the resources that these uh, these companies have at, at their disposal. There's also arguments that the bills would affect national security negatively. That has died down a little bit. You know, if you look at the text of the self-preferencing bill, there are many, many carve-outs regarding China, companies owned by China. I would say that it is well covered in both the text of the bill and sort of the affirmative offenses or affirmative defenses available to the companies that they won't have to like give over sensitive data to China or Chinese owned companies. That was like a, right. a big part, I think, of the concern at committee, um, which is why a lot of these changes were made. That has died away a little bit when it became pretty clear that uh, TikTok would be a covered entity under under these bills. So they'd essentially be be prohibited from, from doing the same practices uh, as sort of the big four ostensibly American companies. Although the question as right. to whether they act in American interests all the time is, is it open one? Right. It sure is. Uh, as I, I know you to be a good prognosticator of what happens in, in Congress – what do you see as the major obstacles on the Senate floor? Uh, and then going back to the House side, and where do you see this going over the next several months? Oh, oh, Ben, if I knew, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be a much happier person right now. But so what, <laughs> this keeps you up at night. Well, I mean, this, yeah, this is like the, the number one thing, you know, I'm, I'm working on right now. And I would say the issue, it's sort of interesting. The issue is not whether they'd pass if put to a vote. Because they would, they have, you know, 
at least 20 Republicans who would go and a bulk of Democrats. Like, I don't think there's any question if, if forced to vote on this bill, like looking at the polls and where big tech accountability stands, I think any sane chief of staff or member of Congress would understand that they need to support these bills if the vote is, is, is there. Now, the big question is convincing leadership to put these votes on the floor because there are some in the Democratic caucus who are concerned that, in their words, the bills would endanger their chances uh, at the midterm being forced to vote on the bill. Now, you know, we argue that this would help your midterm chances by showing voters that you're actually doing something about big tech accountability. I think without, you know, naming names, some members of Congress are concerned that if they're forced to take this vote and vote in favor, they would lose significant fundraising support from uh, big tech companies or consulting firms or just the whole sort of ecosystem. Right. And many of these, especially in the House, you have a lot of powerful representatives who represent maybe Silicon Valley districts, yeah. and these are their constituents. That's right. Certainly we know that on, on House Judiciary. So let's say uh, these two pieces of legislation pass. In terms of your work, what do you see as the next frontier in fighting big tech monopolies? Is it revisiting those House Judiciary uh, bills, or is there something else entirely that's uh, on the frontier but that hasn't really been taken up by by policymakers yet? I think things shift a little bit once we figure out, I mean, a lot depends on what happens. Um, but either way, things shift a little bit to enforcement and uh, an area of, of the federal government that I very much uh, am interested in, in terms of like agency enforcement, right? Like, so part of the bills would be the FTC and the DOJ would then have to create guidelines as ha- as to how this is enforced. There's a lot of work around that. That has to be Right. And big tech will, you know, if put in that fight, will be, you know, lobbying those agencies just as hard as they're lobbying Congress right now. So I think the fight is is one of implementation. If these pass, if they don't pass, man, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, I guess go back to the drawing board. Um, and, you know, there are. You know, there's a there are lawsuits going now like DOJ and FTC are moving on big tech accountability these, th- you know, antitrust lit- litigation is notoriously long, um, so it could be a long slog. Um, but I think some of the focus, the advocacy focus, moves back to sort of the agency side. Although, I mean, I don't know how interested. I'm under this. I'm assuming that uh, the Republicans take the House, so that just sort of scrambles everything. And I don't. Indications are that they will not prioritize these issues, um, and that's coming from Republicans themselves. So. I just, the legislative outlook gets a lot dimmer uh, after August. All right. uh, Interesting uh, conversation. Uh, Really, really good stuff. I love when I get to ask you, what did you think of the conversation? <laughs> right. It's rare ben, I get you, that opportunity. That's right. Ben, you should be ashamed of yourself. I know. This will be, be your last week on Caveat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I really thought it was an interesting conversation. And boy, Matt was a great guest. Um, you know, it's fascinating to me um, just the power that these big platforms wield. And uh, how do you rein that in? you know, um, while still allowing for 
you know, the things that uh, the things that make this nation great, right? <laughs> the innovation and all that sort of which yeah. we want. Um, but something you know, you and I have talked about many times. It, it troubles me the amount of consolidation that we have now, where um, anything good or desirable gets uh, bought up and and uh, sucked into a big national company. You know, and the only thing I always think about are cable companies. Right. right. We used to have local cable companies. Then they got bought up by regional companies. Then they got bought up by big national companies. Now. There's a handful of you big national option. companies, yeah. right? So you're you're lucky if you live in a cable duopoly, you know, to get your your internet and your cable or whatever. Um, and I just don't think ultimately that's good for us. What's interesting to me is I think we know inst- uh, instinctively that that's not good for the consumer economically. Mm-hmm. It's going to uh, decrease uh, our chances to get the best product for a most the most competitive price because big. Tech companies, if they're in a monopoly, um, you know they don't have to worry about competition, so right. they can so they can screw us over. I hadn't really thought about it, and and Matt introduced this uh, both in his work and in the interview about the impact that would have on privacy and security. Mm. Just because without the threat of uh, reasonable competition, there's less of an incentive for these companies to focus on. Uh, security for their users, and privacy for their users. Uh, There are certainly reasons for them to focus on it. Uh, Bad PR is one of them, and there is certainly a minimal level of competition. Uh, But when we have two companies that operate app stores, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't have to worry about an enterprising company that's going to come in and and revolutionize security, you're not going to have as much incentive to secure your application, secure your software as you would if you were in a truly competitive market. Yeah. And that ends up being bad for consumers. Yeah. That's true in every industry. I mean, the more monopolization there is, the worse off uh, the average consumer uh, ends up. And I just we're seeing how that manifests itself in the tech world. And uh, it seems like Congress has taken notice and we have this rare opportunity over the next couple of months to actually get something done. It's not going to solve the problem. Uh, We're still going to have this problem of big tech um, monopolization, um, but at least to start to eat away at the problem and protect consumers in certain circumstances. Yeah. Boy, Ben, it's so easy to be cynical, isn't it? About it sure about, is. about anything making its way through Congress. I'm, I'm also I'm also reminded of uh, the classic uh, Lily Tomlin sketch where she was the telephone operator and she said, "I'm sorry, ma'am, we're the telephone company. We don't have to care. Yeah, we don't care. We don't have to. Yeah, Yank just lost Peoria. Yeah, right, right. A good YouTube clip uh, of an old SNL skit if you're interested." <laughs> All right. Well, again, our thanks to Matt Kent for joining us. He is from Public Citizen, and we do appreciate him taking the time for us. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com.
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thank you.